You are listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thanks for joining us for this teaching series on Leviticus, A Call to Priesthood. All righty, Real Life, how are we? Hi. I, hi. Okay, everyone just wave, just get it done, because everyone's, there we go, awesome. I am Paul Patterson, I am the Moscow Student Ministries coach here at Real Life. It's only taken me 12 sermons to finally get that title down, but we got it. Anyway, I'm glad to be with you. We are on our second week of Leviticus, who is excited? You guys are crazy. Like, Leviticus is boring, it's something you avoid, it's confusing, it's Old Testament, I mean, bleh. Uh, yeah, no, I'm... I'm, I'm feeling two different ways this morning. Um, one, I'm feeling like giddy fanboy nerd out mode. Like, like OMG, like, uh, uh, if that happens this morning, I do not apologize. But um, yeah, the other way I'm feeling is I'm a little, I don't know, I'm nervous. Uh, and I, t- two reasons. One is because of that, like, I don't want to blow it. But at the same time, like, it's Leviticus 16. Um, Leviticus 16 is, it is so crucial to our understanding the biblical narrative of God's redemption in the world. It is crucial to understanding the New Testament work and writings. And we so often neglect it. In the, in the void of this understanding, we, we substitute our own theories and our own ideas. We, we assign meanings to words that don't necessarily have that meaning. So Leviticus 16 is crucial to understanding. Now, and so often we skip it because we think it's boring or it's confusing or it's, it's no longer needed. And it, it's a shame that we do that. Now, Leviticus is y- unique uh, in several aspects. One, it is in the center of Torah, you have Genesis, you have Exodus, you have Leviticus, the Numbers, and the Deuteronomy. It's not in the middle by accident. In fact, if you go to the end of Exodus, the last little thing you will read is about how Moses stands outside of the tent of meeting, outside of the tabernacle. The glory of God fills the tabernacle and Moses can't, he cannot go in. And so God has to speak to Moses outside of the tent of meeting. But when you go to the beginning of Numbers, what you will see is that Moses is in the tent of meeting and God speaks to him there. Those aren't coincidences. Leviticus is meant to be the center of Torah. It is the central lesson that God is teaching his people. So last week we looked at what it means to be a priest. What are the roles of priests? So we looked at the four roles and, how, and we emphasized how you and I are called to be priests a kingdom of priests, a a holy nation to represent our God to the world today and right now. We we have to be different and peculiar now. And Leviticus teaches God's people what that means. Now in Leviticus, uh, what we find is a chiasm. And if you know, if you've been with us for any length of time, we love chiasms. Like we talk about chiasms all the time. And I had someone ask me, "Why, why is that? Well, what I wanted to say is because chiasms are everywhere. Unfortunately, it hasn't been in, until the last two or three decades that bi- uh, biblical scholarship has really taken literary structures of the Bible seriously. Well, one Bible scholar I was reading this last week, he said, the question is no longer, is there a chiasm? The question is now, where there, is there not a chiasm? Because chiasms are all over the place. 
So it wouldn't be surprising that Leviticus, that happens to be in the center of Torah, that itself would also might happen to be a chiasm. And what we find is right in the middle is Leviticus 16. Not just the middle of Leviticus, but the middle of the entire Torah is this one chapter, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So maybe, maybe it has something to teach us. Maybe there's a central message to this chapter that we today need to understand. But too often we neglect the Old Testament. It, it would be like reading your favorite, reading a book, but skipping two thirds of the way through it to the last third. Like you'll get, the, you'll get the gist of it. You'll understand how it ends, but you're not going to understand the character development, the plot line, how things are reconciled. You're not going to understand the metaphors and the language and the imagery that it's toying with. Like we, we can't do that. And so Leviticus is crucial to our understanding of the redemptive work of history, what God has been doing. So what we want to do is we want to show you what this, uh, what this chiasm is. Yeah, we, we can go. You're good. First off, we start with the rituals of redemption. This is how we're going to title it. Every major section in the book of Leviticus is going to start with the words, and the Lord spoke to Moses. And this is how it's letting you know this is a new section. So the first section that we're going to look at is all these offerings, and there's five offerings. We have burnt offerings. We have grain offerings. We have sin offerings. We have peace offerings, and we have purification offerings. Uh, And then at the end part of Leviticus, we have this other set of rituals, these festivals and holy days that we are to celebrate and how we're supposed to celebrate them. The next next part of the chiasm is the priesthood. So we look at the initiation of the priesthood, this uh, this discussion of common and uncommon. Uh, At the end, we talk about more priesthood things. Uh, The next section of chiasm, we look at these holiness codes, these purity laws. And the first part, next part, there we go, we have this. And by the way, just free, here's a freebie for you. The first part of Leviticus is going to deal with things, a lot of things. And so there's going to be these really odd, peculiar things. Like, why, why is that in there? And you're going to read about how this object is holy and this object isn't holy and this object is clean and this object isn't clean. And the last part of Leviticus, it's going to transfer to us as a people. What does it mean to be holy and clean as a people? And so the first part of Leviticus acts as an object lesson for the back half of, of Leviticus. In the middle of Leviticus, though, you have this day of atonement, Yom Kippur, this one day where everything is atoned for. And if we've grown up in church, we have a vague, at least a vague understanding of this day. But there's just so much more hap- going on here. And once again, I want, a, I want a nerd boy on you. Like, <sighs> check out our Footnotes podcast, but even then that's not enough. Um, uh, all right, so understand this idea of atonement. We're gonna, what we're going to do is not look at, we're going to look at the Day of Atonement, but we're going to start at uh, the first seven chapters. Because in these seven chapters, one of the offerings that you can bring is a sin offering. When you sin and you need, and you need to make atonement, this is how you do it. And so what we find, <clears throat> let's uh, put up the picture of the tabernacle. What, you, what we find, it's not an, a literal picture, it's a drawing, if you couldn't tell. What we find is that people, when they sin, they bring an animal uh, into, the temple, into the tabernacle court, they bring it to the priest. The priest will have them lay their hands on the head of the animal and put, the sin, they put their sins on the animal. So where are the sins now? On the animal. Good job. We're doing great, guys. Good job. It's on the animal. 
They will then slaughter the animal and burn some of it. And then the high priest will take some of its blood. And the high priest will go into the holy place, that, that first entrance area. And he will, with his fingers, uh, sprinkle the furnishings, uh, the, the menorah, the temple of showbread, and the incense altar. And he will go to the very veil of the presence of God, it states. So that, that, that 10-inch thick curtain that separates God's throne room, the very presence of God, He'll go right up to that curtain and he'll flick seven times in the presence of God. So what you see is this progression, person after person, day after day, (coughs) sin offering after sin offering, this progression of sin from the person to the animal, from the animal into the tabernacle. And it goes right up to the very presence of God, but not quite there yet. So you just see this movement of blood and sin day after day into the tabernacle. And what's peculiar about this is that the blood isn't covering you. The blood is literally covering God's dwelling place. That he is burying the sin now. He is collecting it. The tabernacle system and the priesthood becomes a sin bearer system. They deal with people's sins. They carry, it carries it. And then on the day of atonement, what we find is that that sin, that blood is not going to stop at the veil. It's actually going to go right into the holy of holies, right to the throne of God, to his mercy seat itself. And actually it's going to cover his throne. It's going to cover the atonement seat itself. And this happens one day a year on the day of atonement. So this is what we're going to pick up in Leviticus 16, verse 3. This is how Aaron, the high priest, is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So this is going to be uh, his offering for sin, his atonement for sin, and his family's atonement for sin. Uh, He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to lie, he is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban, a lot of linen. So you get this picture of the high priest removing his priestly garments. Remember last week, uh, Marty was talking about the, the ridiculous outfit he had on during Easter, how it looks weird. What's funny is Exodus calls it garments of beauty and glory. Anyway, so the high priest takes these garments off. It's almost like he's unpriesting himself. And he, he washes next, and then he puts this on like, glorif- like this plain pajamas. That's what I like to picture it as. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he has to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So we have a young bull and a ram for Aaron and his family. Then we have two goats and a ram for the Israelite community. And what he's going to do with the bull is he's going to slaughter, he's going to put the sins on the bull. He's going to slaughter the bull at the altar, bring the blood into the holy place, but not just the holy place, the holy of holy place. He's going to go right up to the throne of God to his very presence. He's going to have a censer full of the, uh, the coals from the altar with this fragrant incense that's inside of it. And the smoke is going to shroud him, kind of act as a temporary veil. And he's going to go up to the atonement seat, the, the footstool of God's throne, and he's going to sprinkle the blood of the bull seven times. So now sin has been transferred all the way to God's very throne. He's going to go back out. He's going to take the, he's going to take the two goats He's going to present the two goats before the tabernacle. They're going to cast lots, like roll some dice, maybe. I don't know. And one of them is going to be chosen to be killed. Whatever goat that is, he slaughters that goat. He takes the blood from that goat, goes back into the Holy of Holies again, and sprinkles the blood again on the atonement seat. 
And this, this goat bears all the sins of the people. It has, it's gone all the way into the most holy of places. God now has all of the sins for the year. But the story isn't done yet. What we see is the priest goes back out. And this time he gets the second goat. And this is where we pick it up. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. What we see is uh, this also is showing us, it's, it's like a rebooting of the entire tabernacle system. Uh, like there's no other priest here. There's nothing else going on. The high priest takes off his garments. The entire thing shuts down. He's going to clean it. He's going to atone for it. He's going to re-consecrate it. He's going to sanctify it. It's a rebooting of the entire system. Uh, and then after he does this, it says, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, what is he making atonement for? He's making atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and for the altar. Why do they need atonement? Because they are bearing the sin now. After he's done this, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness. Uh, in the Hebrew, if you, depending on what translation you read this in, it will use the name Azazel. Uh, King James, I believe, will translate it as scapegoat. And what, the image is clear. All the sin has been collected by God. And what God does is he transfers it to this one goat. And he kicks the goat out. You could watch as your sin leaves. Whatever your sin was, whatever the thing you've done this last year, there it goes. It's gone. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people. To make atonement for himself and for the people, he shall also burn the fat of the sin of, uh, of the offering on the altar. This last burnt offering is to mark the end of atonement. It's similar to when Noah offers his burnt offering that marks the end of the flood. Like it's done now. And this burnt offering is meant to be an aroma to go up to God. Like it's done. Atonement is done. And what you'll see after this, if you keep reading, and you, I hope you go read Leviticus 16. Like, I hope you want to by the end of this. What you see is that the, that the parts of the body that are left over from the sin offering, the, the bull and the young goat, the young bull and the goat, sorry, they will take these body parts, take them outside of the camp and burn the remains. And whoever does that has to bathe himself and change his clothes before he comes back in. Whoever took the scapegoat out of the camp has to change and bathe before he comes back in. And the high priest himself has to bathe in the tabernacle before he can put his garments back on and go out back to the people. It's a marking of a completely isolated cycle where everything is clean and everything is new. Like everything is done. Your sins have been completely taken care of. They're no longer here. They're gone. You could watch it go. 
You could chase after it too if you wanted, but it's gone. Later traditions, as uh, the Jews kept doing this year after year, they would, later they would actually take the goat itself to a cliff and give it a push off. So that way, it would, that way the goat wouldn't wander back. Uh, it's not scriptural, but that's what they would do. Um, I, kinda, I find that funny. I don't know. <laughs> like, you know what happened was one year, Azazel came back and everyone freaked out. <laughs> like, ah! So yeah, they made sure that never happened again. Um, but you get the picture, right? Yom Kippur teaches us that your sin is gone. Your sin has been taken care of. You're free from it. Like whatever, whatever guilt and shame, however you feel like you have to hide and defend yourself, however you feel like you have to prove yourself, whatever insecurity you're wrestling with, you don't have to anymore. Whatever you feel like you've been enslaved to, those areas you feel like you can't change, you are free from them. You could watch it go. And the audacious thing about it is that it's just one goat for the entire nation. Like we tend to look at Leviticus as some barbaric thing, but we have to understand it in its context. These people knew what sacrifices were. These people knew what temples were. They, they knew this idea of priesthood, but they also grew up in a system that if you ticked a God off, you didn't know how to be right with that God. Like you had no idea how you would ever come back into right relationship with them. So sacrifice after sacrifice, you would just keep bringing it, hoping, hoping that God's favor would change for you. Leviticus provides a very clear and direct, like this is how you do it. And it's audacious that one goat could take care of the entire sins of a nation. It's crazy. Hello. Um, it's crazy. This is the mercy of God. Like this, this is what this is. Leviticus is meant to teach us what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like. And by the way, it's ugly sometimes because sin kills things. This is one of the lessons you're supposed to learn when you bring your animal. It, your choices kill things. The goat isn't necessarily a replacement for you. It's meant to act as a symbol of either you or someone else. Your sins kill people. It's not necessarily a punishment. It's just what it does. It introduces death to the world. So every week you are forced, every time you bring a sin offering, you are forced to look at the consequences of what you've done. Like I understand, like after first, uh, first uh, service, I had a lot of questions from people about forgiveness. Like how do, we, how do we forgive people who don't want to be forgiven? What about those people that don't think they've done anything wrong? Like I understand it's, it's hard. Forgiveness is hard. Flat sucks. And like we want, we want to ride, we want justice. We want people to pay. We want people to realize. We want them to learn their lesson, to put them in their place. Like we want that. And so to wrestle with forgiveness this way is hard. I understand that there's these other conversations. What about when people don't repent? What about when they're doing things that are still harming us? What, like when they violate trust, when they I understand all of that. At the beginning of it though, at the very beginning of it, we have to start with forgiveness and mercy. That's where it all begins. And that is what Leviticus is attempting to teach us. Leviticus is meant to act as a huge object lesson, a way for God's people to practice what it means to walk this out. It was never about the sacrifice. It was never about the system. It was more than that. 
And by the way, if you think this is a New Testament understanding of the tabernacle, it's not. You can look at Psalm 40, where it says that God doesn't, God doesn't delight in sacrifices and offerings. He doesn't delight in sin offerings and burnt offerings. Instead, what he wants is he wants, he wants a re- repentant heart. Or Psalm 51, 17, when David says, it is, you don't delight in sin offerings or I would have brought it. That's not what you wanted from me. The sacrifice of God is a broken and contrite spirit. You look at 1 Samuel, where Samuel, a high priest, says that obedience is better than sacrifice. Like the tabernacle teaches us to repent, what it looks like to repent, what it looks like to come back home, what it looks like to change, what it looks like to navigate atonement and to once again come back in reconciliation. And it teaches us how to do it ourselves so we can help other people do it as well. And so we offer the same mercy to other people that God has offered us. And then we become the first step in them walking in rightness with God then. Uh, another path, uh, Micah 6, 6 through 8. Like we know Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The two verses before that are crucial to understanding that though. He says things like, uh, how shall I approach God? With what shall I bring to him? Shall I bring to him uh, uh, calves a year old? Shall I offer him a thousand rams or 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Is that what God wants? He sacrifices and he says, no. That's never been what he's wanted. What he wants for us is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. It's always been what it's been about. Uh, One other passage that we can look at. Hosea 6, 4 through 6. What can I do you with what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. When we neglect Leviticus and the Old Testament as a whole, when we don't understand that we fail to understand the crucial work of Jesus, uh, the rest of the writings of the New Testament, the language, the imagery, how the story is resolved, the character development. We, we, we miss the plot line. We jump two thirds into the story and we think we got it down, but we miss the beauty of it. Uh, let me give you one case study uh, from Collisions, chapter four, verse five through six. Watch, next time you try to say Colossians, you're going to say collisions. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. What image should you be thinking? Priests. Like the way you engage with outsiders. Be wise. Be shrewd, you could almost say. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. What does that mean? so that you may know how to answer everyone. How do you season your conversation with salt? Like, obviously, he's not being literal. That would be weird and unhealthy. Uh, Like, what does he mean? What image is he referring to? What is he pulling from that he assumes you understand? That this metaphor that he's leaning on to have this deeper meaning, what is he doing? Where is he pulling it from? It's from Leviticus. It's from Leviticus chapter Chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Every grain offering 
Grain offering, by the way, wasn't, wasn't an obligated offering. You didn't have to do this. This wasn't expected. This is just up to you. And so normally you would take grain and you would make something out of it, like cake, because everyone likes cake. God likes cake. Shrek. Uh, every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast. But she should ask why. And there's a great reason. We don't have time. For you are, to, uh, you are not to burn any yeast or honey in a food offering presented to the Lord. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Now, if you're trying to track with me, we went from Colossians to Leviticus 2, and you're still going, I still don't get it. Like, why? Why? What's the image of salt? Why am I adding salt to my grain offerings? What's the object lesson? Uh, what you find as you work back through scriptures, going towards Colossians, what you will find is that there's this, uh, the same way where we talked about how it's not about sacrifices. What God wants is obedience and repentance and mercy and love. That's what God wants. In the same way, there's this other track that you could also follow where the sacrifices of God's people are their praise and their thanksgiving. Think back a few weeks ago when Aaron talked about the sacrifice of thanksgiving that we are called, all called to make. Whether you're walking faithfully with God or whether you've fallen off the boat. Like it doesn't matter where you're at, the first step is to be thankful. And so salt becomes this image of it. That our offerings, whatever we do, should always be seasoned with salt, with thanksgiving. Everything we do. And it starts with a praise to God, yes, but ultimately the way Paul sees it in Colossians is that it has to be expressed in the way we talk with others. Everything we say, every topic, doesn't matter what it is, whoever we're talking about or whoever we're talking to should be seasoned with thanksgiving. That is different than our world today. I don't know, watch any of the presidential debates. Can you imagine if a presidential candidate in the middle of a debate said, you know what, you're right. Thank you for pointing that out to me. That would be crazy. You know, uh, one man I think about all the time when I'm talking about things like this is Tom Mays. He's one of our elders. Anyone who knows Tom, Tom, uh, they know that he is, he is the epitome of encouragement. It's annoying how encouraging he is. He convicts me. Like, no joke, uh, shortly after we moved here, my in-laws came up and visit. And so I introduced them to Tom. And I jokingly said, Tom Mays is the most bitter person you'll ever meet. You know what Tom does? He, he looks right at my in-laws. He goes, you know what? That's true until I met this guy. Like, come on, Tom. <laughs> like, I was trying to have a little fun and you just like made me feel weird. <laughs> like, we as the people of God, encouragement and thanksgiving should be the standard for us, not the exception. Like, that should be the standard. Yes, there's times to be mad. Yes, there's times to raise our voice. Yes, there's, time, there's times to flip some tables and make a whip and go crazy. Those are the exception. Everything we should do, everything we say should be sprinkled with thanksgiving. And Leviticus teaches us this. By the way, this is just one of the offerings in Leviticus. There's four others. What else could we learn from Leviticus if we really, truly wanted to understand it? How else could we understand how we approach God, how we approach reconciliation, how we approach repentance and the world around us if we were to be serious and passionate about Leviticus and dive back into it? Like Leviticus is crucial to our understanding of the text. We have to get this. 
And in the middle of all of it, it starts with the fact that you have been forgiven. So as we work towards our communion this morning, if you're helping with that, please go ahead and head back. As we work towards our communion this morning, the first thing I need to tell you is that we have an open table. Someone came up to someone after first service and like, I didn't see where the table was. Um, What that means is that everyone is welcome. You are welcome to partake if you want to celebrate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. You are welcome. There's always a place at the table if you're willing to come. Uh, But however, before we get there though, we are going to wrestle with some implications as we come to the table. So hold on to the elements until the end. Implication number one. The message of atonement is clear. God takes our sins and does away with them. God took your sins and did away with them. God took your sins and did away with them. They're gone. As far as the east is from the west, keep, however east you want to go, keep going. However west you want to go, keep going. And if you ever happen to reach an end, either way, know on the opposite side is where your sin is. By the way, if you don't know the image, you can't stop going east and you can't stop going west. It's gone. However, nice that sounds, let's be honest. I feel like my sin's right behind me or right beneath me, waiting for me to fall into it again or right in front of me, waiting to trip me up. It's all like central to the message of God that you need to understand in order for you to be a priest, in order for you to live differently in this world is that you are forgiven. You are free. Your sin is gone. You don't have to live that way anymore. You can change. You can be free. Like you're, you don't have, you don't have to anymore. The things you struggle with, the things you hide, the things you feel you don't have to anymore. The insecurities, the way you prove yourself, the way you always have to be right, you don't have to anymore. You can be free. Amen. Yeah, I think, that's a good, I think that's good news. But it takes a step of faith to trust that. It, ta- it requires us to come to our God and to accept it. It requires that we don't chase after our goat into the wilderness. We stay within the camp. We st- Number two, the sacrificial code is meant to teach us all about God's mercy so we can extend that same mercy to others. If premise number one is true, if implication number one is true, that you are forgiven, that forgiveness is, has been freely offered to you, the ugly truth then is that it's been freely offered to others, including the people that you don't want to forgive. As God's people, we don't have that luxury anymore. We don't have the luxury of attacking and demeaning people, getting a little ahead of myself. God's mercy should compel us to also be merciful because the way our God is is the way we are called to act as well. This is why we have to be priests. This is why we're made in his image. So when he freely offers forgiveness, we freely offer forgiveness to others as well. We become the first line, I was gonna say of defense, that's not right. Uh, We're the front line. The first interaction people will have with our God is us. And if we can't convey mercy and forgiveness, we will push people away. Yet, 
once again, I understand. Like, hopefully you leave this sermon with tons of questions. What about this? What about that? I, good. Because forgiveness is messy and it hurts. And if we're not willing to deal with it, we're never going to forgive. Never. And this goes into our third implication. We need to stop sacrificing people on the altar of sin. But you don't understand, Paul. Like they should know better. They hurt me. They always hurt me. They don't know what they did. They don't even think they've done anything wrong. Like I could offer them forgiveness, but they, they will never accept it. I, yeah. And so we have to be a people that stops sacrificing other people. I'm going to nerd out because I'm getting goosebumps and I have to. Um, one of the other messages of Leviticus 16 is the message of the two goats. Why are there two goats? You don't need two goats. Why are there two goats? Why is one goat killed and one goat sent away? It's more than just God giving you forgiveness. It's a picture of what we do all the time. When we scapegoat other people, when we either kill them or kick them out, we either belittle them or we passive aggressively neglect them. This is the story of Cain and Abel. When Abel offers an, an animal offering and it's regarded by God, but Cain in his envy slaughters his brother instead. So one brother is slaughtered and then Cain is driven to the wilderness. It's the story of Ishmael. Like we're all familiar with Isaac's story in Genesis chapter 22, when God tests Abraham and says, offer your son, your only son, whom you love. You should be thinking John 3, by the way. Offer him as a burnt offering. So Abraham takes Isaac to the mountain that God shows him, puts Isaac on the altar, and as his arm is extended with a knife, God stops him. And instead in the thickets is a ram. You should be thinking in the ram as a burnt offering in Leviticus 16. But the story before that is also important to understand. In Genesis 21, we read of Ishmael, how Ishmael is driven away because Sarah does not like the way he's interacting with, his, with her son. There's some insecurity, there's some, something's happening and the boy is driven away. And we read about how his mom, Hagar, places Ishmael underneath a bush because she can't handle the idea of him dying and she leaves. One, one son is driven away while another son in the next chapter is asked, God asks for him to die. Of course he doesn't. Instead, he provides a ram as a replacement. We scapegoat people all the time. We attack their character. We, we wish ill upon them. When they succeed, our gut tightens. That one person that was a jerk to you years ago, you still avoid. When their name comes up, you just, nah. We do it all the time. Like if, you, if you don't think you struggle with this, really consider it, how much you do this. Like what happens when someone shows up work for the first time, they're new, but they're better than you. They do a better job than you. They get more attention than you. They're more well-spoken than you. What happens when someone shows up that's prettier than you, more well-built than you? Like I feel this all the time when I'm at the gym because I've been trying to get back to the gym. And like, I know you can't tell yet, but like I'm on my bench, you know, doing my thing, feeling pretty good about myself. And this young twerp sits down next to me and he grabs the weights that are twice as big as mine. And he's like, no big deal, man. Like I, I start judging him. Oh, you, 
I won't tell you what I think. <laughs> I'm scapegoating him. I'm scapegoat. We, we get this. Kids get this. Put two, put two kids in the same room with hundreds and thousands of toys and what's going to happen? They're going to fight over the same toy. We do it as adults too, by the way, all the time. We want the praise of someone else. We want the attention of someone else. We want the prosperity of someone else. We want the comfort of someone else. We will blame other people for our problems. It's always something else's issue. We shift blame all the time. It's kind of like Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3. It's like this is our story. In the atonement of God, we are forced to confront our own issues And atonement begins when we stop sacrificing people for their sin. And it's easy to see how other people scapegoat us. It's hard for us to see how we scapegoat each other. And hear me, husbands and wives, we do it in our marriages. We do it with our kids. When the priest was done on the Day of Atonement, He took his garments, his linen garments, took them off, laid them in the tabernacle, and left them there. In John 20, when Jesus was done with his work and the tomb was empty because he had left, we read about how the apostles run to see if the news is true. And when they peek into the tomb, all they see are linen cloths folded. When we come to the table, we're reminded of our high priest who has once and for all taken care of our sins, who has once and for all made it so that we could always live in this confidence that we can be right with God. It's just a matter of us trusting him. And so when we come to the table, we remember this covenant that we can be free, that we, that we, we just have to live in it. That God doesn't man, demand us to pay for our sins but instead as a loving father just invites us to come back home. And Leviticus reminds us what repentance and mercy and obedience and thankfulness looks like. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And whenever we eat this, we as a community remember. So let's remember. And then he took the cup, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And whenever we drink this, we remember the covenant that we are all a part of. Let's remember. Father, we want to thank you that in the middle of your message, of the story that you introduced your people to, the central message where it all begins is that forgiveness is available Our sins have been removed. We are free. Help us in our our effort to be priests in this world. Help us to first start there. In this radical trust in you that we are good with you. That we serve a God who recklessly and almost wastefully loves us. Who will do whatever it takes to get his people to be in communion with him. Help us, to, help us to find our security and our rest in that. And secondly, help us to be the type of people that offer that to others.
it, it, it hurts and it's hard. There's more questions than there are answers. We have to deal with our own shame and our own insecurity to do it. But Lord, help us to be that type of people who walk in the light as you are in the light, who have fellowship with one another. Help us to be a kingdom of priests. Pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like to find out more information about who we are, what we're about, or what's happening in our church, make sure to check out liferotp.com and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you'd like to dive deeper into this week's conversation, make sure to check out the accompanying footnotes podcast available in this feed.